0: Welcome to Business Books and Company. Every month, we read great business books and explore how they can help us navigate our careers. Read along with us so you can become a stronger leader within your company or a more adept entrepreneur. This month, we read Brick by Brick, How Lego Rewrote the Rules of Innovation and Conquered the Global Toy Industry by David C. Robertson and Bill Breen. After facing lackluster growth in the 1990s, iconic toy brand Lego undertook a program of radical innovation under a turnaround artist CEO. Unfortunately, the turnaround resulted in an even worse situation, with Lego facing a deficit so large in 2003 that it threatened the survival of the company. Brick by Brick is about how Lego turned around the turnaround by focusing on its core product and thoughtfully choosing sustainable innovation initiatives. Today, Lego is one of the most valuable brands in the world. But before we get into the book, let's introduce
1: ourselves. I'm David Short. I'm a product manager and former consultant.
2: Hi, I'm Eli Mitchell. I'm a management consultant.
1: And I'm David Kopek. I'm an assistant
0: professor of computer science. We have a really special guest this month. We're so excited to have Corey Cunningham. He's a senior manager of Global Insights at the Lego Group. He's been with Lego for close to six years. Corey, thank you so much for joining us this month.
3: Thank you very much, David. My uh, pleasure to be here. And uh, before I dig in, one thing I'd like to note is anything I'll be reflecting on today reflects my own personal experiences as an employee at the LEGO Group and not any official position um, kind of or statement on behalf of the broader LEGO organization. So thank you very much for having me today.
0: Yeah, it's great to have you, Corey. And can you tell us just a little
3: bit about your role at LEGO and what you do on a day-to-day basis? Sure, absolutely. Uh, so I am, as you said, a senior manager in our Global Insights team, and I work out of the U.S. headquarters in Enfield, Connecticut, And in my role, I am the lead for the insights discipline, which consider it the kind of fancy 21st century version of the market research function, um, an analytics function at the Lego Group. And on a day-to-day basis, my role is to head up the insights function for the Americas region of Lego. So that means our key business units in the US, Canada, Mexico, and Brazil, uh, really kind of being responsible for developing the insights agenda, working through projects and leveraging all the different analytical and research tools we have in the toolbox to deliver impactful business driving insights and strategy for all the different kind of parts of the value chain across the organization with a specific focus on the America's region.
0: That's really cool. We're so excited to have your insights today. Look forward to hearing what you have to say about the book. Let's get into the book. So let's start with the author. Who is David C. Robertson?
1: So David Robertson was the professor of innovation and technology management at IMD in Switzerland from 2002 to 2010, and was actually named the Lego professor for the last few years there from 2008 to 2010. He previously worked at McKinsey, and since 2011, he's been a professor at Wharton. So he, uh, this book was released in 2013, so he was actually working at Wharton at the time, but I think he'd done much of the research while in Switzerland. So let's get into the Lego group itself. How did the Lego group get started?
2: Sure. So Lego got started in 1932 in Billund, Denmark. The founder was Ole Kirk Christiansen. Uh, Corey, feel feel free to correct that.
3: Ole Kirk Christiansen, you're close.
2: Christiansen, got it. All right. I'm probably going to say that wrong for the rest of the episode. Um, So he was a carpenter and started making wooden toys. And he focused on making really high quality wooden toys. Um, You can think like yo-yos, pole animals and such uh, back in the 1930s. And part of the lore actually when he started the company was his son, Godfred, at one point told his dad they saved money by only painting two coats of paint on these wooden ducks that were sent out for shipment instead of three. And Ole said, nope, we do high quality toys here and told him to go to the train station, get them off the train and stay up all night painting the third coat of paint on those wooden ducks. Um, and I believe, and I've actually been to the Lego museum in Billund. So I think I saw this. I just didn't fully appreciate what it was that uh, wooden duck is, you know, part of the company lore and therefore presented in the Lego museum for all to see. So they had many a variety of toys. And in 1949, uh, Ole was on a ferry and talking to a toy retailer who talked about the value of having a system of toys. So multiple toys that a child could buy that all worked together. So Ole liked this idea. He returned home and he kind of wrote down six principles of a toy system, and then reviewed all of the different toys that they had in their lines at that point, and looked at the automatic building block that he had built in, that he had introduced in 1949, and said that this best fits those six principles of creating a system of toys. And so that's kind of the start of the Lego building block that we know of today, and why they started focusing so much on that with that system of toys. It's largely been a fam- Well, it still is a family-owned company, but it was also a family-run company for many years. So, in 1957, Godfred Kirk Christiansen took over. Part of the big thing that he did was he introduced the minifig, which made it much more of um, a system, and you know, you were able to imagine and create scenes with the Lego system of play. And then in 1979, uh, the grandson uh, Kijed, Kirk Christiansen took over. Cal, Cal, <laughs> Thank you, Corey. <laughs> you would not
3: figure that out on your own. <laughs>
2: yeah. And I, I mean, I think Lego, we all grew up with it, right? Like it is ubiquitous around the world. In 1999, it was the toy of the century, actually despite struggles that it started having in the 1990s as digital was introduced. And I'm sure that we'll get into that a little bit. And then, you know, as... Recently as 2020, it was actually you know lauded as the most reputable brand in the world. Um, and I think that it's one of the largest family-owned businesses, certainly within Denmark, but probably within all of Europe, as it is still family-owned.
0: So Lego was growing quite well throughout the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and then they hit a roadblock in the 1990s. Can you tell us a little bit about that period of stagnation? Why did they stagnate in the 1990s?
1: So feel free to throw in other ideas because I don't remember the exact details of the dates, but I think a big part of the problem for the company was uh, sort of a, a changing demographic that like children became much more interested in video games and like physical object toys became like a less prominent uh, source of play. And so Lego started to be disrupted in that way. And they chose to basically throw a lot of different money at different ideas and most of them just didn't succeed very well. So they basically dramatically ramped up their expenses. They stopped focusing on sort of the core business and tried a lot of uh, different ways to grow in new spaces. And many of those didn't really succeed. And so they ended up going from like a quite profitable company to, you know, ultimately having, you know, a couple of years of of, of significant losses.
3: And I think a pretty significant corollary to that was losing sight Um, through the innovation pipeline as different things were created was what was actually making money for the organization and kind of uh, divorcing an understanding of the different product lines and how they were rolling up to like the broader kind of P&L of the organization. Um, So kind of lost focus of really where was the cash coming from and then where was it going out the door.
0: So things aren't going well in the 1990s and they hire a turnaround artist CEO, Paul Plowman. Am
3: I pronouncing that right, Corey? Uh, I don't know how you pronounce days. Paul, Paul would be the first name, like literally
0: how it's spelled, Paul. Sorry, Paul. And they bring in this turnaround artist, and he has a new plan. What's his radical turnaround plan, and how does it work out?
2: So as we've started to say, uh, Paul really pushed for innovation at Lego. So the start of the book actually has a full chapter on the seven truths of innovation. Um, and it kind of goes through each of these, like, quote unquote, truths of innovation and a way that Poole pushed for a new product line or pushed, you know, a new technique at Lego, kind of following these th- truths of innovation. It's actually, on, you know, commentary on the book, kind of an interesting, like, gotcha setup because. You know, the first chapter is kind of history of Lego, and then it gets to the turnaround uh, or, you know, the stagnating sales in the 1990s, bringing in pull to really accelerate sales again. And it goes through a whole lot of product lines that he introduced without really seeing that they're failures, kind of like hints at it a little bit. And then in the next chapter, it's like, oh, and then by the way, they... Uh, you know, started losing profits massively, you know, they were losing a half a million dollars a day. And it goes back and revisits all of the products that it talked about in the previous chapter and basically says that all of them were a failure. So, Commentary on the book is that it lost a little bit of my faith in it right at the start just because I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa wait. like you just kind of convinced me that this like Galador and Spielberg movie maker set were all like really innovative things that Paul Plowman had done. But then in the next chapter, you're telling me that none of these were successful. They all, they all kind of failed and lost a lot of money. But I think that was, that was really his focus as a you know, turnaround at the time, CEO, before things got even worse and they needed another turnaround, uh, was to really drive innovation. And, you know, he, he was also like very singularly focused on sales rather than profits. So his, you know, his bonus was actually based on doubling the sales and had nothing to do with the profits. I'm happy to jump in on like some of the specific products that he had launched. There was a, there were a whole lot that were listed in the, over the course of those two chapters.
0: Yeah, why don't we go into a couple of them that you found the most interesting?
2: Sure. So um, I think two two that jumped out to me were Jack Stone and Galador as products that were launched under Pull. So Jack Stone was essentially an action figure that was created to compete in the U.S. with kids who were not uh, typically into building. So, you know, they were trying to expand beyond kids that are only buying Legos to build into kids, um, you know, that are largely looking at other types of toys. And I think the the challenge with Jack Stone is that they just fabricated this action hero. So it was, like, you know, bigger than the typical Lego minifig. It didn't really fit into, like, the system of building blocks that kind of allows Lego to, you know, any set fits into another and you can always be building and always be designing and innovating with it. And it just like was completely separated from that system. And it was also a completely fabricated action hero. So there was no storyline behind it. There was, you know, no history, no reason that uh, kids would really want to buy this Jackstone action hero. And then it seemed like it alienated core fans. So it just lost all around. You know, the audience that it was trying to capture, it didn't capture successfully. And then the core fans also didn't buy into it. So it sounds like it was out there for like one year and then hit the discount bins at all of the retailers.
3: And if you look across the toy landscape, uh, what you can see is a graveyard of failed, what we'll say maybe is homegrown IPs across toy manufacturers. Uh, You know, everybody wants to be the next. you know, the next hit series or franchise uh, that, you know, really spurs a whole universe of merchandise opportunities. But, you know, it takes a really magic formula to get something to stick that kids really get excited about. And for all the, you know, Jurassic worlds and other major franchises that are out there, there's about, you know, 20 times as many that didn't make it. And, um, you know, there's probably an argument to say that Lego was overly confident that if they just, you know, used a formulaic process that boom, it would work with kids and that they can, you know, really be confident that that would happen. If you look across the toy industry, it is very difficult to make things stick. And, you know, there's not always a right answer or a wrong answer for why or why not. Um, but, you know, that's something where it's easy to get overconfident that, oh, it's a cool figure and it has action and therefore kids will consequently get excited about it. And, uh, you know, kids are fickle. And I think Lego got a little too um, overambitious and overly self-confident in what they could pull off that would automatically elicit um, enthusiasm from its core boy target audience.
2: Yeah, so the, so they definitely bet big on Jackstone. The other thing that I thought was interesting about it was like how quickly they veered away from their core values. Um, so as as I had mentioned, Lego started in nineteen thirties in Denmark, and it, it survived through World War II. But Ole really felt strongly that war should never be a playtime thing for kids. So you know, Lego sets don't they don't really do. Uh, wartime Lego sets or, you know, just like with the action heroes as Jack Stone, but like with guns and such. Star Wars is actually an example, you know, when they did license Star Wars, the book talks about how it was really challenging and difficult at HQ because it was getting into making war a playtime thing for kids. And I think they, you know, felt, felt that they were able to do that because it was a fantasy war, but... That that was just like another thing with Jack Stone. Was like it felt very different from the core Lego.
0: So they hire this turnaround artist, and the turnaround ends up being a bust. In fact, it leads to a crisis at the company in 2003. Can you tell us a bit about the
1: crisis and just how deep it was? So they ended up losing a lot of money. I think that was sort of the key real problem. Is that while they'd been sort of stagnant, um, they had at least still been profitable through through much of these periods, and so this was the you know, one of the first times where they were really actively losing money. And so they did uh, push out uh, Plugman. They brought back in, um, I'm forgetting his name, so Corey <laughs> could probably chime in, but the, the grandson or the great grandson of the founder uh, to be sort of a figurehead. And then um, they brought in a couple of other you know people, this, a CFO and sort of a, a head of strategy who was ultimately going to become the CEO. And so that was a, a, a former McKinsey consultant. I'm blanking on his name as well. So, so Corey, if you can help out with the names. Yeah, uh,
3: jorn Vig Wig-Nudstorp was the CEO, was the um, guy who was brought in from McKinsey. And Kel um, Kirk-Stansen was the grandson who was brought in as uh, CEO.
2: In terms of the issue that they were having uh, at that time, there was one chart in the book that I just like loved. I love charts. Uh, that showed sales, profits, and the number of new toys. And it basically shows... Sales are like stagnant from the chart shows 1994 through 1998. So there's like not much of a change in sales. And then profits just plummet starting in 1996 all the way to being negative in 1998. And at the same time, the number of new toys introduces introduced skyrockets. So it starts at 109 in 1994 and increases all the way to 347. In '98, and I think that's kind of that issue that was going on with Plug was that they were just innovating too much and launching so many new toys and not paying attention to the profits of each, and that that's kind of what caused the negative returns and the crisis in 2003 uh, that results in them kind of having to revamp the entire management team.
3: And part of what makes the Lego group so successful, as is talked about in the book, is the fact that you have a core portfolio of elements, which is the technical name for bricks or, you know, tree branches or whatever it might be. That, you know, in one set might be a croissant, in another set is a piece of decor next to a light on the outside of a building, and in a third set is, you know, flare on the back of a motorcycle. And you get high levels of efficiency because you can use a single mold for all different sorts of pieces. Um, and as a kind of a fun sidebar, AFOLs, which we call our adult fans of Lego, um, as mentioned in the book. I uh, really love spotting how these singular pieces are used in all different ways. So once you start proliferating the number of elements and the ways in which they're used, uh, as the book mentioned, you really lose the economies of scale and the efficiency in production, and then your profits kind of take a nosedive as your number of product lines and things like that expand.
1: Yeah, I found that whole, whole section of the book really interesting. So I, I think they said it's basically $50,000 uh, to build the the sort of core core mold for these pieces. And so if it's, you know, something that's used in millions and millions of instances, it's effectively, you know, free. But if you're only using it in, you know, a thousand sets or something like that, then you're spending $5 per just on, um, you know, creating that mold. And so the, the need to decrease the proliferation of different pieces and sort of constrain the designers a little bit to, to focus more on, you know, core pieces that could be used across a variety of sets. And, you know, obviously, there are cases where you really do need that unique thing. Um, They specifically talk about Indiana Jones's whip, right? Like that, that makes it feel really, you know, genuine and real in a way that like nothing else would necessarily work. But you just can't do those all the time. You can't have every set have these unique pieces that are never going to be reused anywhere else.
2: Yeah, from my ops perspective, I really enjoyed uh, reading those examples as well. You know, I think they talked about how they have a police set where there were 12 policemen that like each of them had a uniquely different face, which actually like requires a whole separate process uh, for manufacturing. And it was just incredibly inefficient. Like, you know, the average eye wouldn't really even identify or appreciate the differences between those faces. And with all of that, it seems like the they weren't tracking the profitability of it. So when Nudstorp came in, you know there was no activity-based costing, which he's a management consultant. I'm a management consultant. We do a lot of activity-based costing. I always think of it as being silly and how could a company not do this? And reading this book made me really appreciate the value of some of the work that we do because it's so it's so obvious to track like, okay, each product line or each set that we sell are we actually profiting from it? And they didn't know that. It says that, you know, NedStorp identified that 94% of Lego sets were unprofitable. So basically the only profitable sets were Star Wars and Lego City at the time. And it was because of this proliferation of all of these non-standardized pieces that each set was using so many of.
1: Yeah, I thought it was Funny in that uh, section where they talked about. I guess there were there were six different chefs and they consolidated them down into into one model. And there was kind of like an uproar from the the A falls, but the the company sort of took it with some humor and actually had like a funeral for the, the chefs that they were retiring online.
0: So they're facing a crisis on multiple different fronts. How do they respond to the crisis? They bring in a new CEO. You mentioned that already. What is his game plan when he gets started?
2: So this is. Ned Storp, uh, the new CEO that they bring in, as Short mentioned, he was like 35 years old, had been a PhD, uh, and had actually, I think, been a kindergarten teacher uh, for two years before joining McKinsey. And he worked at McKinsey for two and a half years in Denmark before joining Lego. So he, he was pretty young and you know didn't have too much experience he obviously wasn't brought in as the ceo he was brought in on the strategy team but i think kind of soon after he joined he started raising the alarm bells about how unprofitable lego was at the time which which people just it seems like they didn't even realize until he brought it up and jesper overson the cfo uh really supported him with that so then he he was kind of Operating as the CEO, uh, as uh, Christensen, the grandson of Ole, was the CEO in name at the time. So uh, Nunstorp's focus at first was to turn around and get out of the crisis. So really focus, getting back to the basics focus on the core, so the core product and the core group of customers, and returning to profitability. So that that was really the initial focus was like as this conversation that we've been having on doing the activity based costing, you know, getting rid of all of the unprofitable sets, and focusing more on the core. And then also, uh, the big thing was looking at retailers as their core customer rather than children because one of the issues that they had had was retailer like there was so much lego inventory at retailers that didn't sell because of the years leading up when they weren't providing good forecasts to retailers i think you know one example is that they thought that the star wars set was going to sell just as much in 2003 as it had in 2002 even though there was no movie coming out And it's like, you know, I know that they're not going to sell as much if there's no movie coming out, right? But they, you know, told all the retailers to buy so much of this. So then the retailers just didn't have trust in Lego anymore. So that was the initial focus. Um, It wasn't on innovation. It wasn't on growth. It was really on kind of cutting product lines, really investing in the core and returning to profitability, which they actually did um, by 2004 they were profitable again.
0: So they stabilized the balance sheet. Then it's time to try to return to growth. What initiatives did they take once they'd cut costs, refined the product line, streamlined to actually return to growth?
1: So yeah, they took a number of steps to try and become more innovative once they were uh, sort of back on an, on an even footing. I thought some of the most interesting ways that they changed were around opening up to the fans. So historically, Lego had been very focused on the fact that their core demographic were, you know, five to nine-year-old German and American and English boys. And so, you know, everything they were doing, they were, they were thinking about it that way. But there were these, you know, AFOLs, the, the adults who were, were very intense about these products and really loved them and were very engaged online about it too. And so Lego did start to actually, you know, engage with these people, but also to engage more directly with the children as well. And so a lot of the sort of, Product development had been very, you know, in-house focused on what, you know, designers who would love the toys for their whole life thought, but not necessarily focused on like direct customer research, really engaging with children in their homes and things like that. And so they, they did a lot of customer research. They did a lot of direct engagement and even sort of bringing in the the adult fans in some of the development process as volunteers to help advise the company. It was especially around the... Uh, the relaunch of the uh, the Mindstorms robotics uh, capabilities, Mindstorms Next, I think it was called, and so uh, basically they focused in on their core, the the brick and the the system, and you know extensions around that core system. Got rid of a lot of these like ancillary items, like the the Jackstone Galador, etc., that um, were not sort of within this this core space, and really you know went to their customers to understand how that how they could get better. And we're, we're able to do a number of sort of adjacent expansions uh, with new product lines like games, like the Mindstorms that I was just talking about, uh, LEGO Architecture, and, and Ninja Go. So these these new areas that really saw a lot of growth, but were also you know really focused on, on the core sort of brick system that had been the key to LEGO success for so many years.
0: All right, let's get into the specific products and how those products came to be and why they were such big successes during this period. Can you tell us about a few of the products that came in this post-2003 period from the book that you found the most interesting and why they were successful?
1: Yeah. So Mindstorms was something that I actually engaged a lot with uh, as a child, although not not the second generation that they, that they focus on here. But that was a, a set of Uh, sort of robotics-based toys that had like a simple programming language that really allowed kids to build uh, simple robots that could, you know, really do functional things. And that became, you know, very popular, like huge competition systems built up over the years where I think there were even, you know, tens of thousands of global teams that were competing in some of these competitions that, that laddered up to, you know, global finals. For me, I just had a, a fifth grade science class where we we built these uh, Mindstorms uh, little battle robots. And so, you know, uh, uh, groups of, of two of us would build these little Lego Mindstorms robots and then fight them. And my team just made like the simplest one that was basically just a battering ram. And it actually ended up, uh, I I don't know if we won the whole thing, but we, we definitely did well, we made it into the finals or something. Um, but yeah, we just had like a simple battering ram, and we could break the other toys when everyone else tried to like, you know, create a, a wrecking ball or something that was just too complicated and, and didn't a, didn't actually function. But I, I was a, a big fan of that. the uh, The architecture system I thought was also really interesting. In in that case, it was uh, an independent architect who was just on his own developing these very complex, you know, eight to twelve foot tall uh, models of. Uh, I think it was like the Sears Tower, the John Hancock Tower, a couple of kind of classic American architectural skyscraper icons. And Lego saw that and ultimately, you know, brought him in, worked with him to turn that into the Lego architecture series and create, you know, smaller scale versions of that that could be sold in museums and specialty goods shops, et cetera, and really, you know, expand their purview beyond the the toy stores that they'd been in traditionally and also sell it at a much higher premium. So those architecture toys sold for, I think, you know, two or three times the price of what the that, the equivalent number of bricks would sell for in, in the classic uh, options. There are a few others, Corey or Eli, you want to chime in on some of the others?
2: Sure. For first, I, I just want to say I, I really liked the architecture story. I think one thing that really just surprised me as I was reading this book is how much like free labor and free innovation the fans of Lego have provided it. So there, there's just several examples with product lines where uh, the AFOLs are involved and provide their feedback and provide their insights for some of the products. And you know, for for some, they even like formally created teams and groups that provided feedback for, I think all they got were like free Lego kits coming out of this. And it shocks me that that's so core to their innovation and is formalized, but isn't formalized to the point that they're actually paying these people as advisors or consultants, and I think it just goes to show the customer loyalty that uh, customers are kind of willing to provide this input, and they're just excited to see it uh, come to life, you know, and not saying, okay, but will you pay me for this? So the uh, architecture kit was an example of that, where this architect, Adam Reed Tucker, had created six foot, I think even up to 18 foot architecture uh sculptures out of Lego bricks. You know, I think he started with the Sears Tower, but this was this was all also free advertising, right? Because it would just be really big. There would be, you know, news stories published about what this uh architect was doing. And then when he met Smith Meyer from Lego, he said, like, oh, okay, this is great. Could we uh package this for kids? Tucker, not a Lego employee went and created a set uh, for the Sears tower that could be built you know a smaller set that could then be sold and like presented it to read to Smith Meyer a year later and it, like that's just incredible that there was that much um, innovation being produced by customers. I think Ninjago was one of the other big lines that they talked about through this. One thing that I uh, well so so first ninjago is essentially uh, ninja figurines. Uh, Corey would love to understand how much these actually fit into the Lego system. I, I like didn't really understand that from the book and I don't know exactly what they are. But they wanted something that would essentially go viral in schools. The goal that they actually set was that it would be banned from schools because it would be so popular um so loved thinking of that as a corporate goal that you're going to build a, a figuring that is banned from schools and what they ended up doing was building something that had like it was on spinners so two people could take their ninjago on separate spinners and when they hit when they collided with each other one would pop off and then therefore you won so it made it a bit of a competition when you won, you got to claim like the sword from the other ninja. Um, so there were many elements to this that just made it really viral and really exciting for the kids that were using Ninjago.
3: So, Eli, you bring up an interesting point around the fit with the Lego system in play, as we call it. So, that would be a case where you might look at it and say, hmm, what's going on here? You know, they talk about how important it is that everything's interchangeable, yet. This feels like a somewhat materially different uh, play experience. So, you're right, the play pattern is different, the competition is different, but what's meaningful is the core experience of building these characters that can spin when they break apart. You can build them in different ways with different accessories and things like that. So, even though the play pattern is grounded in this head to head competition with the spinning function, the actual experience of building and how the characters come to life and their accessories still is what's core to the system in play. So, in the book, they reference You know, new to the world, but uniquely Lego. I might be mischaracterizing it, but essentially that's what it said is the idea is how do we bring a Lego play experience to life where kids can build these characters in the universe they live in and building in the sense of Lego play, but giving them a new way to engage with a play pattern that is beyond just the standard, you know, build and display, uh, for example, that a lot of people think uh, think of for Lego. And it's funny, the example around kids getting excited about battling and spinning, uh, something we talk about a lot is, you know, you've made it when uh, things get banned from schools. Um, and, you know, if you think about different kids' uh, trends and stuff like that, that have um, progressed over time, uh, that, was, that was kind of the goal of, of developing something like Ninjago with the spinners that kids would bring to school and play with their friends. So still building, still Lego, just a different manifestation of the play experience.
0: I love the way you put that, Corey. That's really funny. There's one other important toy in this section, Bionicle. Can you tell us a bit about that as well?
3: Yeah, so I can I can talk a little bit about Bionicle. Um so this was a line of call them like monster aliens for lack of a more articulate description uh that were I think like buildable action figures essentially. So remember I was just talking about, you know, a moment ago this notion of uniquely Lego but still new to the world or something Lego can only provide. And that's where, you know, we were talking earlier around Jack Stone, for example, and it was a different character, but it really kind of lacked the DNA of what made it Lego. You know, the arms didn't articulate, you didn't build it in the same way, so it didn't have the unique Lego DNA. So Bionicle still brought the self-expression and the creativity of building these characters and that pride of building, but with a universe of these, these buildable monsters and everything that went behind it that you know really made Bionicle succeed, because it still provided that meaningful build experience kids felt that sense of ownership of the characters they created, and kind of to the point I made around, you know, you can't always predict exactly what about a given IP or a certain franchise and the universe behind it that will resonate, Uh, this really just knocked it out of the park. The formula of, you know, this alien world and all the powers and things like that really met a need for kids, and they had the excitement of, you know, building that character that was going to be joining this universe, uh, kind of with the buildable construction figures. Um, And then, you know, you had the the really clever go-to-market strategy behind the new packaging, the alternative retail distribution to really target additional purchase occasions beyond the core wishlist-driven Christmas, Hanukkah, birthday sort of behavior, you know, where you found new ways to give kids a reason to get a Lego set. So, you know, not only did it hit a consumer need, but it also hit a shopper need in terms of giving people a reason to buy outside the conventional calendar, both in packaging where it was placed and consequently the occasions on which you might purchase it. So it had really had a few things working in its favor.
1: I thought it was really interesting how like Bionicle was kind of like an outgrowth from um Slizer and Robo Writers as well. And so that they'd sort of had, I guess Slizer that that was really a breakout success, but they hadn't expected it to be. And so they had already prepared RoboWriters to replace it. Um, and didn't have the inventory for like a second year. And then they sort of like paired the, the best elements of both of those together to, to then launch Bionicle that, that then succeeded for, for a number of years.
2: So just to summarize, I think this section of the book had a lot of really good product examples and brought us through the story of each of these products and how it came to be. And, you know, most of them seem to be really successful. Some of the themes that I think Lego did in order to drive that success, you know, short, short mentioned this earlier, but they, they overhauled the Lego development process so that they were able to develop things a whole lot faster. So instead of taking two to three years to get to market, it took six months to get to market. And then they also had these quarterly stage gate reviews where they could uh, kill a product earlier in the process before investing so much. Or they could say, you know what, we think that this is a good idea, but this product just like you need to sit with it a little longer, which it sounds like it didn't really happen in the Plowman era. And then they, they had this innovation matrix, which I really liked. And it kind of set up what was incremental versus radical in the new product idea? Was it the retailers that you were going after? So as Corey's mentioned with Bionicle, that they were able to, you know, sell it in new places. I think it was like, you know, e- even in like gas stations, they talked that you could buy it. On-
3: vending machines.
2: In vending machines, yeah, exactly. You know, was it was it a new time of year? Again, with Bionicle, that it could get out of the Christmas holiday season based on when new shows were coming out. Was it a new product design? Was it a new market that it was going after? Was it new customers? Right, like so, there was this innovation matrix that set up to say where was there a radical change versus where was there an incremental change? And that just sounded like a, a really structured way to think of it with how you're introducing a new product. And then finally, it seemed like they just opened up to the community a whole lot more. I think in the Plowman era, they just said they rested on their laurels of being really successful, but were in and, you know, kind of internally focused in Denmark and under... Corey, I pronounced it incorrectly earlier. Nudstorp. Under <laughs> Nudstorp.
3: Yeah. Jön wie Nudstorp. <laughs> Nudstorp. No, Danes are very well acquainted to everybody pronouncing it wrong, so don't beat yourself <laughs> up. I Six years later, and I still screw it up every yeah, now and then.
2: Last month, it was a book with a lot of Indian names, and I'm sure we butchered there as well. So <laughs> we're really not doing a good job here. But, you know, that they introduce customer insights as a step in the process for launching each product. And I'm sure, Corey, that's why you've got your job, right?
3: I'd like to think so. Unfortunately, they've kept our department around. So, you know, uh, job security for me, hopefully. In the latter part of the book, they get into two
0: product lines that get basically their own chapter. There was quite a contrast between the two, and I'm hoping we can get into that contrast. One of them is Lego Universe, and the other is Lego Games. Why did one succeed while the other did not? Which one succeeded? Which one did not? Let's get into the Lego games and Lego universe.
1: Yeah, I really enjoyed these these two chapters. I thought it was they were nice little like counterpoints to each other. So Lego universe was an MMO that they were trying to, de- or that they did develop.
2: Or sure, what's an MMO?
1: A massive multiplayer online game. And so the idea was that it was a, a Lego universe where kids could, you know, build with Lego bricks online, um, and, you know, uh, interact with each other through like sort of minifig avatars. And it was, it was a really cool concept and, and like, they actually even kind of call it out in the book, like <laughs> someone really succeeded with this idea. It just didn't end up being Lego. Right. So, um, you know, Minecraft is obviously in a lot of ways, a very similar idea and, and came out a little bit later. But took a different approach so anyway ultimately what they say is that that Lego universe failed in a lot of ways because of how demanding the Lego team was so they were very focused on you know perfection and you know the so much of Lego's identity is um, having just really really high quality products and so they wanted the digital representation of Legos to be just as high quality as the physical Legos were but the computer powers just really weren't there at the time and so the amount of processing power it took, to render this perfectly detailed brick was such that you couldn't really do anything on screen. And um, so they, they kind of fought against that by having, you know, if you were further away, then things weren't quite as pristine. And then, you know, up close, it, it became very detailed. But really, just like the processing power wasn't such that you could have like that great of a game with that level of detail. And so, you know, Minecraft took a, took a different approach, had a much, you know, lower phi uh, experience. And as a result, you know, was able to, to have something functional and cool and, you know, people really enjoyed it and then, then build on it over time in contrast the uh the lego games system was was kind of the opposite so lego universe they hired an out an external vendor it was in like a space that they didn't really know very much about because you know online games not something that that lego had real expertise in they sort of were trusting the vendor but then taking like a very hands-on approach with lots of review cycles and whatnot and sort of not giving enough power to the vendor to really go after making the best game and instead like I think the terms literally said that there couldn't be any bugs in the software when it was released, which Copec, uh, I'm sure you can imagine, uh, not being a very reasonable uh, expectation to achieve. On on the other hand, Lego Games was built internally uh, through the the labs program, and it was really about developing board games based off of Legos. And so they, they had a lot of success with that. It was, frankly, a much cheaper endeavor. They didn't have to really put nearly the, the resources. I think they put something like $30 million into building the Lego universe. So it just had to have, you know, tons of users to really be profitable enough to continue and did end up getting shut down after about 15 months, I think, once it did launch, I think maybe five years after the, the initial you know, start of the program. On, on the other hand, LEGO Games, much smaller group, uh, able to really just have a couple of designers working on it in order to come up with these projects, didn't really require a lot of unique pieces to be added on. So it could be done mostly from pre-existing things other than the the day that they, uh, that they developed. And so, yeah, it was it was a really cool like sort of counterpoint of these two different attempts at innovation and, you know, where they really succeeded and where they really failed. So Lego is
0: actually a family owned business. What role did family ownership play throughout the book, throughout the turnaround and maybe even to this day?
3: So I think one thing we, we see in a meaningful way, and this is not unique to family owned, to, to the Lego Group in particular, basically when you have your ultimate stakeholder be a family, they have much wider latitude to make concessions around poor performance, moving the goalposts for what success looks like. Uh, you, know, you don't have the pressures of Wall Street and things like that. Um, and because the Lego Group is really stems from the labor of love that was only Kirk Christiansen's, um initial innovation, there was really wide latitude to take the hit during the really kind of critical period where the company was struggling and uh, be willing to make those financial concessions due to their long term vision for what a Lego play experience could bring. And I think if you would look at your average publicly held company, uh, shareholders would not have stood f- you know, for the amount of time it would have taken to turn the company around. And consequently, I think what it means at the end of the day is you probably wouldn't even have a Lego group today to be talking about uh, that would still be making products around the world. Um, so it really takes a family with a vision that there's something there and that with the right people to make it happen, we'll get there. But, um, you know, and then they were willing to take the financial hit accordingly while the Lego group kind of got its act together to figure out how can we make this a viable organization again.
0: And I guess this is a question specifically for you, Corey, but how does it impact working there or does it at all? Does it impact the culture at all?
3: Yeah. So one of the things that's interesting in inter- working uh, for a privately held company internally and it still kind of blows my mind is I have yet in nearly six years of working there to hear a quarterly number reported. And I think this is this type of observation is not going to be unique to us, but it allows you to take a really long term view in terms of initiatives we're pursuing and things like that. And it also really enables you to make very deliberate choices around, OK, we don't want to borrow money, for example, and I'm, I'm making it up. But, you know, these types of things we don't want to borrow money on the markets Why pay interest we will self fund and we will take. Margin hit or you know the profitability hit, for example, because we want to go pursue a certain long-term capital initiative, whether that's physical capital or you know uh, kind of uh, soft capital, like you know software capabilities, etc. Because we can hold ourselves to whatever KPIs we'd like to do so. So you see some kind of warped isn't the right word, but kind of unusual decisions where the company is willing to take a, you know, decline in near-term profit for a long-term investment. You'll see this in some kind of the publicly released news articles about our performance and things like that, where the company's actively said, oh, you know, overall profit was down due to investments in digital capabilities or growing in China, for example, or things like that. Um, And that's where, you know, a lot of the mandate of what the company looks to deliver on and what we hear internally might be very different compared to a publicly owned company where you're having to hit those quarterly numbers and kind of all the ramifications that come with that kind of every three month cycle of having to, to post your figures.
0: This book, Brick by Brick, was written in 2013. There's eight more years of Lego Group history since then. Corey, how has the company changed or maybe stayed the same and followed the same path since the time that the book was written?
3: Yeah, so I think um, at the end of the day, um, it is absolutely still the same DNA, the same Lego brand, all the same principles that really drove the kind of family held organizations since then. But kind of riding the momentum of what we've seen with the success that the Lego group had through when this book was published, really, the company's consi- really continue to set its sights um, to, you know, be bigger and better and most meaningfully cast a wider net across greater, uh, a greater array of audience segments. So, for example... You'll see that there was very little mention of girls in the book. And at this point, actually, Lego has launched multiple product lines specifically targeting girl consumers. So, Lego Friends is our powerhouse girl line. Um, We have Disney Princess as another property, and there have been a handful of others along the way that we've developed with the goal of going, uh, you know, of developing products that are really appealing to girls. And, you know, this is something where as, as the Lego Group looks to reach as many children globally as possible with Lego play experiences, We've really had to grow beyond that core boy, five to nine, six to nine year old target in Germany that the book mentions and really expand greater beyond that. So we see it in terms of both audience segments. Um, Another one, for example, is adults. Um, And there was actually a good bit of uh, articles and things in um, the popular press referring to during the COVID period how a lot of adults got into building with Lego sets. And for anyone who might have been at Target over the past uh, four or five months, you actually would see there was a whole adults welcome ad campaign and there was an end cap with signage and imagery specifically targeting adults, uh, really looking to get in that mental wellness space, that kind of quiet quiet leisure time activity, mental focus, looking to bring Lego play experiences to adults who are looking for those opportunities to do things. Uh, So that's what we really continue to see progress on the consumer side. And then another kind of uh, area where we've really seen major levels of um, investment has also been with the level of our gro- global presence. So, for example, you know, we now have a big office in Shanghai and looking for other markets around the world where we may not have historically had much of a brand presence or on the ground operations uh, where we're looking beyond the core of Western Europe, United States, et cetera, to really tap other markets where there's incremental growth potential. So those have really been the big things is. Uh, you know, continue to drive that momentum for reaching more kids in more places around the world.
0: Brick by brick does get into a bit how Lego was using insight from its core fans and from especially plugged-in customers to develop new products and and develop focus groups. But this is actually your day-to-day role at Lego, so I'm hoping you can shine some more light on this and tell us how today. Lego is using customer insights to develop new products?
3: Sure, sure. So this is absolutely my wheelhouse. So at the end of the day, what the Lego group tries to do is is really say that every decision we make needs to be grounded in some sort of insight. So why is it that, you know, if we're going to go pursue a certain strategy, whether that's with product innovation, with our marketing strategy, with our retail distribution strategy, whatever it might be. You know, it has to be grounded in a reason for why are consumers or shoppers, you know, why should we pursue a given strategy, uh, you know, based in how consumers or shoppers are behaving? And really kind of one of the luxuries of being in the global insights team at the Lego group is um, insights really form the core of everything we do. And what we find is that by really fundamentally understanding, uh, you know, if you go go down a layer below, okay, you know, do you like this new product line A or new product line B? But what are kind of those fundamental things, for example, that make kids tick, or why is it that shoppers, you know, really feel that sense of success when they buy toys? Because what's interesting is, um, you know, when people are buying, let's say, conventional center store consumer goods, it's a pretty mundane experience. If you know you're buying laundry detergent or string cheese or oatmeal or whatever it is, but buying toys tends to be quite a bit more emotional because there's a lot of that sense of satisfaction of I want to find the right gift. Or kids get very wound up around what it is they're buying. So. Everything we do really starts with this sense of how is this going to deliver in a meaningful way to fulfill a need the kids have um, or adults as consumers, um, you know, with how they're looking to you know, develop that sense of self-confidence with how they're looking to tell stories, whatever it is. And if we can't justify why we're making a business decision grounded in some level of understanding of what our kids needs, whether that's emotional or physical via play, or how is it pertaining to a reason that a shopper might be buying something in a given occasion, then we probably you know have to do some further homework to understand what is it that the need that's actually being filled here? How does this target what we're doing? And anyone across the organization when it comes to a touch point that a consumer or a shopper experiences, needs to understand what is the insight that is driving it. And that is something that we think about a lot is if you, you being whomever you are within the Lego group, can't justify how your decision or the strategy you're pursuing is meeting a need as articulated to us through the research we've done talking to our consumers and shoppers, then, you know, there's probably going to be a gap there and you know in terms of level of confidence that you'll get within the organization. And it's kind of a really uh, kind of fundamentally embedded process where no matter what the milestone is, what the business process is, where we see people saying, here's what we know about the fill in the blank in terms of boys, girls, adults, shoppers, grandparents, whomever. And here's, you know, the things that really um, is the need to be filled here. Well, then we can justify why we're doing what we're doing. And there's a real culture of kind of rationalizing your your strategy based upon what we know about the broader landscape. So that's kind of the core of what we do. And we'd like to, I mean, I'm biased because I'm in the global insights discipline, but we'd like to think that one of the major reasons for our success, and the book touches upon this in terms of kind of saying how during the crisis, we got away from really understanding what it is that made our consumers tick, really saying, you know, this is something that we have to understand because if we don't, somebody else, Mattel, Hasbro, a startup in the industry, will go figure out what that untapped need is and and go pursue it. So that's where really, if you think about what is the decision you're making, ultimately, how is that consumer using your product or that shopper buying it? How are they experiencing it? And what is it that we need to be thinking about in order to make sure we align to that in, in as an effective way as possible?
0: Corey, I'm wondering if there's anything from your perspective that wasn't covered in the book or hasn't been covered in our discussion that you would like our listeners to know about the LEGO Group.
3: So, I think one of the things that makes the LEGO Group pretty unique, and this is going to sound a little corporate Kool Aidy, but I, I do think it's true, is the LEGO Group really does truly pride itself on really delivering best in class play experiences and brand experiences across every single touch point whatever you know whatever way in which someone might be engaging with lego and i think what you're really seeing there is that really tightly held purpose and sense of vision for what does this why does a lego group exist on earth and what is it that we are looking to deliver and anyone that works at lego can tell you the core tenets of you know what is the nature of a lego play experience that we deliver what does the brand mean and having an entire eighteen thousand-person organization, or whatever we are at last count, that has that incredibly strong singularity of understanding—you um, know—I think is a really critical linchpin to our success. And you know, it does sound a little corporate brainwashing-ish, um, but when you really, very clearly have everybody understand what does it mean for that moment of magic when a kid picks up a Lego brick, or you know, more recently during COVID, even adults—you uh, know—we all understand what it takes to make that magic happen that is where you really see the kind of success come to life. And it's pretty rewarding you know, to be in a 500-person global marketing conference, for example, with marketers and the product designers all from all over the world together in Denmark and everybody, no matter what, understanding what it is to bring the brand to life. Having that sense of single purpose, no matter who you are in the organization, is pretty rewarding and special. And I think it's something that we really pride ourselves on delivering day in and day out.
0: Thank you so much for that insight. Let's bring it back to the book for a moment. Is there anything else about Brick by Brick that we haven't talked about that anyone wants to mention?
2: Yeah. So first of all, uh, Corey, I agree how during COVID Lego has expanded to adults more. I bought a Lego set reading this book. I know when we read the Instagram book, I said it was really distracting because I kept on having to go to Instagram and look at the profiles that they were talking about. And With this one, I felt like I just needed to buy a Lego set. So thank you for providing that discount to the Hedwig Lego set. Um, It it was really enjoyable. I really liked it.
3: One of the small perks of being a Lego employee is you get to spread discounted Lego love around the world.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's great. One thing that, that was in the book that I actually really enjoyed how transparent they were about this was talking about their innovation org stru- structure. And I'm going to butcher this because I couldn't quickly flip back to find the uh, section of the book that it's about. So I don't have the names of the groups. But having, I, you know, I personally, when I was at CVS, worked in a strategic product uh, innovation group. And it was, it was challenging in terms of figuring out how much of your time do you spend on the core products versus innovating. And we tried many different things in the group. So at different points, we had an innovation room, which was like an actual literal separate room. Anyone who was like working in the innovation room at the time, they didn't have to handle their responsibilities on any of the core products. And we had, uh, it was a cross-functional team. So there was marketing and ops and such were all part of the innovation room. And I think, you know, that that worked a little bit. Um, and then there were other things where it was just like more teams that were supposed to be, I think, focused a little more On the Blue Ocean strategies, once that new product was launched, then they suddenly became ops, right? Because they they like stuck with their products. They didn't really necessarily pass the product off to the ops team. So just having seen the challenges myself, I was interested to see how they talked about this. And it seems like they um, at the time of the book had three groups. So they had one group, which was essentially the core products, and you're always supposed to be innovating in the core and improving on the core but it was very clear what they were supposed to be doing, right? So, you know, I, I think it, was, it wasn't it was stressful, right? Like they, they knew exactly the products that they were working with. There wasn't the pressure that they needed to be inventing something new. And then there was a second group, which was more of this blue ocean group. And that was the group that was supposed to be building, I, I think, you know, what they call in the book, obviously Lego, but never seen before that we referenced with Lego games. So that was, you know, the big product that came out of, or one of the big products that has come out of that blue ocean group. And then, you know, kind of mentioned at the tail end of the book is that they introduced this third group, which was focused on building into new markets, new geographies, new customer bases, new retailers, and such. And so I think, it it just seems like with these three distinct groups that it really helped each group because they understood their scope and they understood what they were and what they weren't supposed to be doing. So they were kind of like able to innovate within that box. Um, and we, we've talked about this before, you know, one of the, my favorite classes that I took in business school was about systematic creativity. And it was all about how, if you introduce constraints Uh, that it is then easier at times to be innovative. And I think that that's kind of what they've done with these three groups. So I really appreciated kind of like the detail on the org structure and thinking um, and seeing that example there.
1: I also uh, bought a Lego set while uh, reading this. I was dumb and paid full freight instead of getting Corey to, to give me the discount, although he had offered. So thank you anyway. But I put together a 474 piece Luke's X-wing fighter, and it was really uh, like satisfying. The the I haven't probably played with Legos in I don't know, certainly decades, and it was it was fun to to get back to that. I would say one other piece of the book that I just enjoyed that I don't think we really talked about is uh, just that there are a lot of photos, and I I thought that the things they chose to to highlight and and show pictures of were really interesting. Um, one in particular uh, was was around the the new culture that they were trying to instill. Um, I, f- I forget again which which uh, Danish name. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna I, I would screw up if I did even remember. But uh, one of the the heads was showing these three different images of a fire truck, and so there was like a 1997 fire truck that like just looked kind of dated. There was a Jack Stone fire truck that. You know, didn't look anything like a fire truck and look like a spaceship. And then there was like the new thing that came from the design team that was like a modern fire truck. It really did look like v- distinctly Lego, but really seemed like a fire truck. And that, like, that was the uh, the new vision they had for themselves, sort of going back to the core. You know, making toys for children that they can really relate to and understand. And so, yeah, I I really would 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 recommend getting the physical book for for having those uh, those images.
2: Were the pictures in color?
1: Yes. It varied, actually. So there's like a a section of color photos in the middle. And then uh, throughout the book, they had some like black and white imagery just like in line.
2: Okay, got it. On On the Kindle version, it was all black and white. And very annoyingly, if you clicked on the picture link and went to the picture, there was no link to bring you back to where you had just been. So that was annoying.
3: Looking at pictures of Lego elements and sets without color is kind of a shame. That takes half the fun out of it. Eli, quick tip. If you hit the back
0: button on your Kindle, it'll take you back to where you last leapt from.
2: Well, that's just embarrassing. Thank you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. So now the big question, the most important question, do you recommend this book and who should read it if you do?
2: Yes, I recommend this book. I thought it was really good. So, you know, well, well done in suggesting that we read it, Corey. Thank you. A few reasons, and and obviously, you know, I'm talking to a crowd of people that are interested in business books. I think if you're interested in business books, this is a good one. It had a bit of a narrative feel. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't solely focused on one person's perspective. They had interviewed, the authors had interviewed many people at Lego, but there was a bit of a drama to it, right? Because it sets up uh, the decline in the 1990s and early two thousands, and you know, just sets up where they are and that they need to turn it around. And, and like I, I felt that, like I like really felt the drama in the book. So I thought, I thought that was really cool, and how you know they they expressed that. And then I, I think that they introduced some helpful frameworks for thinking through innovation with a lot of really detailed stories, and those stories are memorable, right? Like being able to remember and cite like why each product was a success or a failure and like what was the issue with it, I thought was really cool. And then I I know we've talked about this before, how like some of the books we read, it seems like, oh, everything's just a success, right? Like, because they only focus on the success. But obviously with the turnaround bit, you know, they focus on failures up front. But even with the turnaround, they talked about uh, universe, Lego universe, and how that was a failure and why that was a failure. So I, I felt like it was a pretty honest book. And then finally, at the at the end, uh, you know, a, a bit of self-promotion, but David's, David Robertson does actually provide some frameworks uh, and some takeaways that you can use and, you know, points to his website where he has a diagnostic survey uh, and a generic innovation matrix and such that you can use from his website. So you actually can take uh, some of the learnings from the book and like directly apply it to your work if you do any innovation work. So for that reason, you know, I I think it was an enjoyable book to read and to see the story of so many of these things that you are probably aware of uh, being as Lego is one of the most recognized brands in the world. And I I think that there are some really helpful takeaways from it. So I'd recommend it.
1: Yeah, I would recommend it as well. I think we, we talked about it a little bit earlier. I think it is a little inconsistent in that, I don't know, it's maybe like pages like 20 through 100 or something, where it gets a little bit like dry as it's just going through all of these products and they sort of seem like successes. And and then, you know, they, they sort of rug pull you and it's like, oh, actually they, they were failing through this whole period. These were not really successful or at least not successful enough for how much they cost. So that part I like sort of got slowed down in. But then once I got past that, I thought the, the rest of the book was really great and yeah, especially around the turnaround idea. So I think like this, you know, iconic company that had been incredibly successful, then goes through some struggles and actually is able to like pivot, um, you know, go back to the core and then actually expand from the core as well, was just like a a really cool story. And and again, to to echo some of what Eli said, I I, I like that they were really transparent with the the struggles as well as the successes, and that it wasn't just a, oh, you know, here's how Lego is so amazing. It was Here is like where they messed up and here's how they figured out how to to really succeed again in the future.
0: Corey, what about you? Who would you recommend reads this
3: book? Oh, everyone, obviously. Anyone that likes Lego. No, I'm kidding. Um, I think what's kind of illuminating to me is, um, you know, understanding what a company with even ostensibly a super powerful brand can do to go off the rails and then what it means to harness the power of your core brand and um, really make that work for you. So I think, you know, understanding organizations, if, you're, if you have the luxury of working for one um, where you have a tremendous amount of um, brand momentum and how you really can figure out like, what is it that makes us tick? Why do our consumers appreciate us and what can we do from there? So I think for for companies who have a similar kind of long history like Lego, there are um, really some things to learn there. And I think uh, that, that's the most interesting part, even as an employee to me, is how they were able to you know really take the momentum of what we had stood for and make that continue to work in our favor going forward. Personally, I would
0: definitely recommend this book. I think it's one of the better books we've read this season. You have to give it a chance because the first two chapters are going in a direction that is totally different from the rest of the book. After chapter two, it feels a little bit like a laundry list, like here's all the ways they innovated. And then you get the big twist that we talked about. Oh, by the way, they didn't all work out. And so give the book at least three chapters before you give up on it. I would recommend it to anyone who's interested in business books, obviously. But especially if you love playing with Lego bricks, I love playing with Lego bricks growing up. And that just added a whole other element to reading the book and hearing these stories about these interesting products that that fell into the Lego building system. Okay, next month, we're going to be reading Radical Candor by Kim Scott. David, this was your pick. Tell us a bit about the book.
1: Yeah, so Radical Candor is sort of a, a modern classic in management literature. It's been a bestseller uh, since it came out in, I believe, 2017. And it's really focused on how you can be a better manager with a real focus on these core concepts of of challenging directly while caring personally about your employees. And so I've heard great things about it, and I'm really excited to read it with y'all. It sounds a
0: little bit like Trillion Dollar Coach, but I'll give it a pass. I'm going to keep an open mind. Okay, anything that you want to plug, and how can our listeners get in touch with you?
1: You can follow me on Twitter at David G. Short.
2: You can follow me on Twitter at image46, or more importantly now on Instagram, you can follow my puppy, Archie, the Prince of NYC. And as an additional plug, uh, my future sister-in-law's book came out in the last month. It's called Gold Diggers by Sanjana Sathyan, and I highly recommend it.
3: And I clearly need to hire someone from the PR team at the company I work at because I don't even have a Twitter account. But uh, regardless, I'm honored to have been on today. And you can
0: follow me on Twitter at Dave Kopech, D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-C. Corey, want to thank you so much for coming on. You're our first ever guest in two years of Business Books and Company. So we're really proud to have had you. I think you offered some great insights for our listeners. And we want to remind everybody not to forget to follow us or subscribe to us on your podcast player of choice. And we'll see you next month.